You're listening to The Film File, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. Engage brain, engage attitude, because here we go. Hello and welcome to this special Easter edition, and I don't know what that means apart from uh, you might have a few eggs. I'd like an alien egg, please. <laughs> Edition of The Film File. I'm Lee Ford. I'm Andy Meakin. And welcome to the show. We're going to rush through this because I've made a serious cock-up this morning. <laughs> well, we record this pre-going uh, out on uh, our usual day. And uh, we've got a big family due, and I completely wasn't aware of timings on this. So we're going to rattle through, we're probably with some pace uh, than ever. Um, but just to say, I have been... Those old prison movies when you used to see people cutting potatoes, you know, or those uh, um, soldier movies where there's just a pile of potatoes and two guys having to go through thousands of them. That's been me this morning. Andy, how are you? <laughs> I'm good. Uh, me comedy watching a comedy film per day is going well uh, so far. There's only been one comedy film this week which uh, didn't quite resonate how it should do, and we'll talk about that in the reviews. Ooh, I'm um, I'm intrigued. Well, it's one that you weren't impressed with either. When we oh, okay, that's together. all right then. I thought it, <laughs> I thought we were doing another book, Rubanzai. <laughs> Something beloved. I introduced the daughter to uh, 21 Jump Street this past week because she's never seen it before, and I put it on, and it was one of them that she... She started off and you could see that she was like, oh, I'm not sure that I want to watch this. What's this? And then at the end of the film, she just turned to me and went, that was great. And I was just like, yeah, of course it was. And now you've got 22 Jump Street to look forward to. Because it's Lord and Miller. Of course it's great. Of course it's great. And you know, I went into 21 Jump Street with exactly the same opinion. Yeah. I didn't think I was going to like it. I remember the TV show. Um, yeah. It was okay. It was fun. And I just thought, oh, no, another comedic take. I'm looking at you, Starsky and Hutch. Of, yeah. of, a, of a show and then of course as you said it's Lord and Miller and so it was just so much better than it had every right to be um, I've made a faux pas today as well do you want to hear of this what you so um, the other half she's she's vegan so we spent all day trying to find vegan, a vegan easter egg couldn't get one anywhere there, there were two prices she wasn't that bothered so I bought her some nice vegan chocolate and I thought I'll put them somewhere safe fill in the blank no idea where <laughs> I put them well, I cannot for the life of me remember where they are. They might hold over till next next Easter. You might be okay. Well, they, well you know, there's no uh, uh, milk in it, so it might not go off ever. So um, <laughs> yeah. I have no idea where they are. So um, yeah, fantastic, great. That's been my day so far. Uh, I did get to see. Remember when we had Adam Nelson? Yes, who was making the Maya on the show last year? Well, um, he's up to the ninety percent finished cut, and I got to see the watch party version of it this week. And what they've got so far is really good. Oh, I'm glad it's to hear really, it. It's a really engrossing, uh, it's a psychodrama thriller set over the events of one night. And yeah, the cast are great in it. And I also got to host the Q&A with uh, oh, fantastic. Like Adam, uh, the writer, Chris. Uh, one of the cast was there. And it was just a great evening of just like getting to see an early preview of this film while it's still in production. And then talk about like what it's brought to the table. Really good. When the Maya comes out, we will cover it in more detail. I can't give you a full review because it's not a finished film. <clears throat> it's unfair to fit like review the unfinished film. But once it comes like goes finished, I'll get a chance to see it, and we will cover it in more detail on the show. But it's one to look forward to because even just this rough cut was enough to make me one hour forty flew by because I was just caught up in it. Excellent, and and also pointing out that you can't have a film shown 
in its entirety before it goes to a festival, if that's right. Yeah. So it, 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 their plans are to get it to the festivals next year. And I wish them all the success with it because what they've got is something really, really, yeah, really solid. Oh, good. You see, you've got the film news. I've got domestic issues. Um, <laughs> yeah, I've, our, I've, our had two lives. Kind of, I've had a good filmy kind of week, really. I had a, a great film chat yesterday and talked about movies that I would never normally talk about. And it's this thing that I do. If I can't sleep, I, I, I try to name films from a certain year in my head or, or how many yeah. movies were starring. And I was talking to somebody else who did exactly the same, but their reference points to films were so much different than, than mine because <laughs> they were going, uh, name five films with Yul Brynner. And I'm going, oh, blimey, that's a, that's a hard <laughs> one because yeah, I can, uh, you know, and it, it was all that kind of thing. So, um, yeah, that was fun. Okay, so let's do our Twitter question of the week. So last week we asked about what music inspired you? So when you hear a piece of film music and it just kind of makes you feel a very certain way, what's that 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 piece of movie music that just either takes you to that mill, uh, takes you to that film, or just in, just inspires you? Yeah, uh, yeah. You you had your own suggestions which we mentioned last week, but you've added a few more into there, I believe. Yeah, I mean, I said uh, uh, Jack Nietzsche's score for Starman when we did it last week. Uh, John Williams' score for Superman is just yeah. It's it's just an inspiring score. I mean, it hits you in the chest. It's that good of of yeah. a of a piece of music. I mean, it stands alone, and it's been used many many times in sort of reference to being to being heroic. But I just think it's just a fantastic, fantastic piece of piece of music. I mean, it just the fact that it says Superman in yeah. the brass section is 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 very smart, very very clever. I prefer that to to the Star Wars thing. I can. Definitely agree with you there. Um, last week I said suggested ET, particularly the like da 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 da, da, da moments, which just like lifts me. And that was because it also resonates with the memory of my uncle having the picture disc. Yes, um, and playing it round at his house. Fond memories of my uncle. So I've also thought on it and the Hellraiser theme. Oh, the that's theme an interesting that, one. Particularly that the Frank's resurrection score is just something that just like. It just grabs me and draws me along. And the theme from Cape Fear. Okay, yeah, very good. Uh, was that Jerry Goldsmith? Oh, no, they used the, the original, didn't they? They used the original Elmer Bernstein piece yeah. of music. They actually went back and didn't rewrite the score. They used the original. What were some of our beloved Twitter followers saying? So Stevie Dan 1969 gave us Kikujiro by Joe Hitashi. Um, not heard that score, not seen the film. Nope. Um, might have to track it down now. I believe it's on Amazon Prime, so I'm going to be tracking that film down. Uh, Dances with Wolves, a score by John Barry. Good score. Really oh, yeah, good it's a beautiful score. I had that as a, again, soundtrack album I used to own. Uh, Once Upon a Time in America by Morricone. Yeah, I mean, we've mentioned Morricone's works before. We did a whole yeah. feature on it. Yes, can't disagree on that one. Um, Hans Zimmer gets a mention with Inception, and Hans Zimmer comes up in other people's responses quite frequently. Well, I watched Dune again last night, and just how beautiful yeah. it is. Um, Stephen H16 gave us Oh Brother Where Art Thou which he says is just pure happy and random escapism. Yeah. Yep, I can go with that. Uh, Sid Blues 101 gave us, I mean if you're going for any Star Wars score, The Empire Strikes Back was where it really hits yeah. everything. He just says the themes from their masterpiece always inspires. Harvey Morton IT, again Inception, Zimmer, a winner every time as he says who he also suggested for The Lion King. He was lucky to see Zimmer live last month, and he says oh, it was fantastic. spectacular. So jealous, Harvey, so jealous. Um, he also threw in Arrival, 
Call Me By Your Name, Little Women and Secret Life of Walter Mitty. Oh, great choices. Yeah, there's some good needle drops in, in the Walter Mitty movie. I rediscovered yes. it during lockdown. Uh, Angela Shivlock put forward To Kill a Mockingbird, which, yeah, that's, that's a really good score. Elmer Bernstein. Uh, film book buff Baker dropped the trivia that John Williams actually played piano on that score. <laughs> so there's a pub quiz question to keep you yeah. look out for. Uh, film buff Baker, again, we're back with Zimmer because we've got Interstellar and Prince of Egypt. See, there's a lot of love for Zimmer yeah. when it comes to scores. I think it's because he's got such a variety of scores as well that he can capture any kind of attention. Sherry Mander, who's also known as Tiny Barrister, gave a load. Uh, so I'm going to rattle through these. Legend, Planet of the Apes, Star Trek, The Motion Picture, The Final mm-hmm. Conflict, The Omen, Total Recall, Aliens, Deep Impact, Iris, Krull, Sneakers, The Spitfire Grill, Willow, or the Star Wars scores, Indiana Jones scores, Empire of the Sun, Hook, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Magnificent Seven, To Killing Mockingbird gets a mention again, Psycho, Vertigo, The Three Musketeers, Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, uh, Ghost in the Shell, Cutthroat Island, Conan the Barbarian, and Dancers with Wolves. I think Tiny Barrister likes his music. Oh, fantastic. You know, I, the only person who's not been mentioned so far, and I'm going to mention it, is Lalo Schifrin. I mentioned him with Enter the Dragon, which I think, but but yeah. I'm going to revise that and say The Thing to Bullet, which is a fantastic score. Yeah, that's a big a really lot of shit, friend. Uh, hey, that's great. We, I mean, this is really working out for us, this, this question. It's a really good response from the guys, and, you know, thanks for all the responses you've given us. Well, you've given me loads of soundtracks that I want to track down now. Uh, it, uh, finally, Vic's movie then agrees with you on Superman the movie. It is, uh, it's it is. just a majestic score. Absolutely beautiful. So uh, this week's Twitter challenge is... So I keep getting asked this question every time I'm doing doing some radio, and, and it's it's going to carry on until there is announcement. Uh, and, and what made me consider this as our Twitter question is I read somewhere that is, is the world ready for a female James Bond? And, and you and I have spoken at length about it, and we suggested no, because I think the backlash would be just too much. Um, but... With the ending of the last Bond movie, I think you can go in any direction. You can either reboot it or bring in this idea of James Bond as a secret identity, etc., etc. All the things that, that, have been, that yeah. fans have talked about for ages. But who should be the next Bond? Who would you choose? And maybe the, the way we should do this is we should give maybe four or five names and see and do a vote on it. Or would you I think, rather? I think, I think we'll throw it out because I think if we limit it down, We've basically chosen who we think yeah, I guess be so, yeah. ones. So I think throwing it out allows people to throw in things that we wouldn't have thought of. Yeah. I mean, I have, yeah. and I, we'll talk about who I think should be Bond next Dan week. Stevens. <laughs> Interestingly, uh, some time back, I would have said yes. By the way, I saw him on The One Show. He was, he was a complete legend. Yes. If you've not seen that clip. Um, but no, Dan Stevens wouldn't be on my list. I'll tell you who mine is next week, so I don't want to influence anybody. Yeah. But uh, who is your choice for the next James Bond? And you can be as wild as, as possible on it. Knock yourself out. Okay, that's this week's Twitter challenge. And what have we got in store for you on this week's show? Well, Andy and I are muckraking this week as we do a deep dive <laughs> into what could be a personal favourite or an absolute tragedy of film. <laughs> Stephen King's only directed feature, Maximum Overdrive. Andy and I will be bringing you reviews of The Lost City, which landed at cinemas, The Northman, which is showing at cinemas, and Choose or Die, which dropped onto streaming on Netflix this week. Fantastic. And of course, we have the box office and the news. And let's start with the news. (laughs) 
So box office, I've had a brief sneak and apparently in the US, Lost City is doing rather well. Will it continue and do well in this country? But Andy, what is the box office? Well, in the US, Lost City has taken a bit of a beating this week, dropping it down to third place, 6.2, which means that top two places are taken up by something which has been around for a few weeks and something which came out this weekend. Now, we got it last weekend in the UK. We'll talk about the UK figures in a little minute. Uh, but Fantastic Beasts opens to 42.2 million in the US this weekend, which is significantly lower than the past few Fantastic Beasts films and definitely lower than all the Harry Potter films. Um, however, over the international markets, it's taken in 150.4 million in its first two weekends of release. So it's not all bad news on the Fantastic Beasts front, but it is underwhelming for a franchise that has such a devoted following but has clearly been putting audiences off as it's been stretching out the backstory. Um, second place is held by Sonic the Hedgehog 2. Yes, that blue peril is still holding in, taking 29.3 million, which means that in the US alone, it's, current, it's currently sat at 123 million. And on the international territories, it's taken 112 million, making it for 235.5 million so far. In fourth place... Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is getting some great critical reviews out there. It's another one from A24, low-budget film. It's had a weekend in the US of 6.2 million. This film is due out for release in the UK on the 13th of May, and it's definitely on our radars here. And holding up fifth place is Father Stew, the Mark Wahlberg-led film following the life of Father Stuart Long, a boxer-turned-priest who inspired countless people during his journey from self-destruction to redemption. It's took in $8.49 million so far in the US, doing pretty well for a more low-key affair from the usually bombastic Wahlberg. Here in the UK, holding place for the second week, Fantastic Beasts Secret of Dumbledore, taking another £2.6 million in the UK, taking its total up to £12.6 million. Sonic the Hedgehog 2 holds second place uh, on its third week with us, 2 million taken this weekend for a total of 16.3 million. The Lost City goes straight in at number three, taking 1.734 million. And The Northman comes in at fourth with 897,000. And Operation Mincemeat opened in fifth place with 848,000. So what else do we have news-wise, Andy, other than box office? So not wanting to miss out on a trend, Mark Wahlberg has hinted at possibly retiring from acting. Following in the footsteps of Jim Carrey and Bruce Willis, whilst talking with Entertainment Tonight, the actor says that after three decades on the big screen, he's been thinking about the end of his career, especially with four kids to think about and spend time with. Yeah. Sooner rather than later, probably. It's got to be something special to really bring me. You know, to leave home, to leave those guys behind, because it's the biggest sacrifice in the making for sure. His current film, Father Stew, which is due for release in the UK in a few weeks, is a film that speaks to his Catholic faith. And it offers an idea of the kind of more personal film projects that the 50-year-old Wahlberg could be focusing on moving forward. I feel like this is starting a new chapter for me, in that now doing things like this, real substance, can help people. I definitely want to focus on making more. I wouldn't say necessarily just faith-based content, but things that will help people. So hopefully this movie will open a door for not only myself, but for lots of other people in Hollywood to make more meaningful content. Wahlberg has been known to take short breaks in the past, but has racked up about 60 credits since he broke out in the Basketball Diaries, Fear and Boogie Nights. One exception to the more personal projects could well be an Uncharted sequel, if Sony decide to move forward on that. Interesting. It's not worked out particularly well for other actors, but I guess he's in a position 
you know, if he's thinking of retiring, he can do whatever he wants. I mean, whatever happened to John Cusack, for instance, uh, who just yeah. went away and, and went from leading roles into doing whatever paycheck was available, kind of the Nick Cage route. So best of luck. He's not an actor that I am drawn to. So uh, I'm, I'm, I'm putting it as nicely as possible. So I'm not drawn to it. Yeah. So it, it, hey, Mr. Warburg, <laughs> go and do whatever you want. Anything else? Warner Brothers have done all their reshuffling and restructuring, and apparently they're exploring a complete overhaul of the DC label, according to a new report that came for Variety. I kind of saw that one. And uh, I'm just going to ignite the fuse, roll it in to the, uh, into the uh, uh, world, and then step back. I'm going to enjoy this. David Zaslav has suggested that the idea is turning the whole lot of DC into its own solidified content uh, with a more coherent, creative, and brand strategy. Basically, if you see what Marvel are doing, where their TV shows tie into the films, even though they run separately and you don't have to watch one to see the other, DC are a mess. Let's be honest. The TV shows have nothing to do with the films. They have films that have nothing to do with the other films, and it's caused a lot of confusion. He wants to try to get it more aligned like Marvel Studios, which means that he's looking around for someone to be the creative and strategic czar, basically DC's Kevin Feige. Now, fans online, and I'm talking proper DC fans, not a certain hashtag supporting brigade, all say that they don't think it should be a comic book writer or a director who's put in charge because Feige is neither and he keeps everything together because he's not directly involved. So yeah. the... They suggest that DC have made the mistakes. They put Jeff Johns in charge at one point. Yeah. And Jeff Johns, as a comic book writer, wanted to make everything comic booky, And that didn't work. They tried putting Zack Snyder in charge of the direction of it. And Zack Snyder's got his own vision. And that clashed with what the executives wanted. They need someone who stands back and lets the creatives be creative, but keeps the overall coherency between projects like Feige. It makes perfect sense. Jeff Johns apparently from those who know got his fingers too much into the pie with Green Lantern and that's why it, it, it underperformed. There were there was too much meddling because the script wasn't too bad. It needed a bit of work, but it it, it meddled and even the director yeah. himself said, um, this is not the film he, he intended to make. The, you know, the successes that they've had are things like the Batman, Aquaman, Wonder Woman, Peacemaker and uh, also Joker, which are all very diverse and different to what's uh, Zack Snyder brought, which means that a certain hashtag supporting brigade, like we reported last week, are now kind of facing up to the reality that they're not going to see their universe it's restored. Going to happen. It's not going to happen. They, Hang they, on. They ding dong. Try... Ding dong. Oh, what's that? It's reality calling. <laughs> so, yeah, if you're part of that brigade of people who cause a lot of negativity and toxicity on Twitter, then, well, this is what happens. Enjoy it. For those people who just wanted to see what Zack Snyder could do if he was given a chance to finish Justice League, if you were nice about it, then I, you know I feel sorry that you're not going to see the project rolled out. But you have to accept that the DC is more than just what Zack Snyder brought to it. Yeah, yeah, um, and you know it was one singular vision, and that meant that it affected everything, and yeah. it it didn't have the coherency, and you know I I didn't enjoy. No, I'm going to rephrase that. I enjoyed portions of the of the movies that Snyder did. I didn't enjoy yeah. them in their entirety. There were bits and pieces of Man of Steel that I thought were great. There were bits and pieces of uh, Batman v Superman, which were okay. Justice League, again, bits and pieces that I thought were fantastic, but it wasn't coherent. Yeah. There were films of, of moments as opposed to an, an epic sense of design. Uh, yeah. When that's been broken, like the Suicide Squad, 
that worked fine when it worked. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Aquaman. Uh, I know you were, yeah. but I think with Shazam, it worked, it worked perfectly well. And of course, Joker, but it, it's that thing that we've, we've talked about many times. And we talked about it with, with the, the Sony effect on Marvel. Listen, most audiences, most public don't get it. They go and yeah. see films for the fact that it's it's spectacle or it looks cool. Um, you know, the MCU fans, are, are, it's still bizarre to think about that there are people who are just who've come along, never read a comic book, and are huge, huge fans of of, of Marvel. Yeah. You know, I've said before, God, I wish I had this when I was a kid. Yeah. I had Nicholas Hammond and Bill Bixby. Don't ever knock the Bixby though. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, blimey, it's uh, it's about time, really. I'm I'm, yeah. I'm surprised it's taken this long to kind of come up with that we'll we'll have more news on that when someone gets appointed to that role as overseer but in the meantime with sticking with dc news kj apper from uh, riverdale and isabel may from 1883 have been cast as dc's wonder twins now i have no idea of who the wonder twins were you see we didn't get it in the uk we didn't get a series called the super friends which was a kind of a kiddie version hannah Hanna barbera no it, was it hannah barbera it could have been it yeah, was hannah yeah. it was hannah yeah. barbera yeah cartoon series about the Justice League, who were the Justice League, they were uh, uh, super friends. Hey, we all get to hang out. Um, they were fun if you're five and six. I mean, there's no yeah. two ways about it. And the Wonder, Wonder Twins were part of that. I remember DC doing a dark take on, on the Wonder Twins at some point, but because in the UK, we never got super friends, it, it's a bit of an anathema to us. But it's something that, it, you know what, it could be a blank slate, it could be like Moon Knight, you can do whatever you want with it, take it down a dark track, do something unique about it. It's not part of DC canon, so you can go anywhere and do whatever you like with these guys, yeah. or, or with these twins, should I say. They have made the, the way into comics um, over time and become part of the actual DC universe, but it's not something oh, okay. that I've picked up on. Um, yeah. She can change into any animal. He can change water into any state, and they have a pet crime-fighting monkey named Gleek, and I would do right that. wrongs, etc. If I had, <laughs> if I could turn water into anything, which I'd be just, I guess I'd be just on Jack Daniels all the time, and I go, hey, let the monkey go and fight this crime. I'm more whiskey. The characters have popped up on TV in Smallville and also The Flash, but it must have been the later seasons of The Flash because I kind of fell out of favour with that yeah, show too. after season three. Um, the film's going to be directed by Adam Stakiel, who penned the Black Adam script and also the Rampage script, and it's going to be his first directorial output, and it will be going for like a jokey take. So let's keep our eye on that. Yeah, you never know. We reported on the casting of the villain in The Blue Beetle, which was going to be Sharon Stone. Well, apparently Sharon Stone has passed on the option and Susan Sarandon has stepped into the role. Wow, it's great. I, I love Susan Sarandon. I yeah. really do. I feel like I've grown up with Susan Sarandon right back to the Rocky Horror Picture Show. She is She's America's mom. Yes. So it's going to be interesting to see her playing a, a villainous character named Victoria Cord in a comic book movie. I'm all, da- I'm all down for that. I'm all down for the Blue Beetle. As a reminder for those who are unaware what Blue Beetle is, Zolo Maraduena, who you'll know from Cobra Kai, stars as Jamie Reyes, a working class El Paso teenager devoted to his family and with no connections to superheroes, who finds a mysterious scarab half buried in a disused lot. The scarab comes alive and grafts itself to the base of his spine and provides him with a suit of extraterrestrial armour that can be modified to enhance his speed and strength, as well as creating things like weapons, wings and shields. The film is being directed by Angel Manuel Soto, who gave us Charm City Kings, and will be released theatrically on August the 18th, 2023. 
So a quick update on the Barbie film. The cast lineup is certainly making this one to watch. We already knew that Margot Robbie is going to be playing Barbie and Ryan Gosling as Ken in a Greta Gerwig-directed film, which those names alone make you intrigued. Over the last month or so, we've seen names such as Kate McKinnon, Simu Liu, America Ferreira, Ariana Greenblatt, Emma Mackey, Alexandra Shipp, Issa Rae, Michael Cera, Harry Neff and Will Ferrell being added. Yeah. And now, on top of that, we also have Emerald Fennell, Kingsley Benadir, Rhea Perlman, Nakuti Gatwa, Sharon Rooney, Scott Evans, Anna Cruz Kane, Connor Swindles, Rita Aria, and Jamie Dimitru. The film is now moving closer and closer to being one of my most hotly anticipated films. On the flip side, what's not hotly anticipated is Fast and Furious 10, and even the inclusion of actress Brie Larson to the cast is not stoking any interest. This news was broken on Instagram this week by franchise star and producer Vin Diesel, who plays Dominic Toretto in the movies, who posted out a photo of him and Larson getting chummy and smiling. And in the caption, he said, what you don't see, however, is the character you'll be introduced to in Fast 10. Larson will be joining the family of cast that includes Jason Momoa, who's also making his debut in the franchise as a villain character who works alongside Charlize Theron's Cypher. That film will be due May the 19th, 2023. Hey, I've got a bit of news. What's, what's you you know, Ryan Johnson's casting everybody for Knives Out too, And, you know, he's basically, <laughs> he, he's, 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 his casting directory is just going, I'll take everyone. Apparently he started casting on his uh next project a mystery series poker face he's got the very great joseph gordon levitz involved alongside stephanie hazoo uh, and they're joining ryan johnson for probably i'm guessing his his future netflix projects because as we spoke about many shows ago he signed an exclusive with them yeah i'm i'm, I'm all there for anything from ryan johnson um, after after knives out, that's it. I'm sold on him completely. And yeah, throw Joseph Gordon Levitt in the mix, and that's it. I'm on. Uh, let's talk about Dune, and in particular David Lynch's Dune. Lynch, who directed the rather messy '80s version, which is still an intriguing take on the material. We have love. We still have love for it. I've I've, I've got a fondness for it. He suggested in a recent interview that he's open to the idea of recutting the film. Now he's always avoided any questions on the film because he was very annoyed at the fact that he had no editing control mm. and it, the film that was released wasn't his film. But he said, Dune, people have said, don't you want to go back and fiddle with Dune? And I was so depressed and sickened by it, you know. I want to say I loved everybody that I worked with. They were fantastic. I loved all the actors. I loved the crew. I loved working in Mexico. I loved everything except that I didn't have Final Cut. I even loved Dino De Laurentiis, who wouldn't give me what I wanted. And... The producer, Raffaella, who is Dino's daughter. I loved her. But the thing was a horrible sadness and a failure to me. And if I could go back in, I thought, well, maybe I would go back in on that one. So he's open to the possibility. But he did follow that with acknowledgements that he doesn't think anybody's going to ever let that happen. We do know that the theatrical cut was 137 minutes. And then there was an extended 177 minute TV cut. But reports have always suggested that there's potentially up to a four-hour cut that Lynch wanted to release. But because he had no control over the final edit, it just got savaged and cut and shredded. Well, do you remember when Superman Returns came out? They released the Donner cut of Superman 2 yeah. uh, as, as part of the promotion for that. I could see them doing it as part of the as, of Dune 2 when, when the second chapter's there. would be a time to do a, a kind of promotion around that in the same way that, yeah. that Warners did did with uh, um, with Richard Donner's version and take of, uh, of his much maligned Superman 2. 
project. I think that now that Lynch himself has shown an interest in being able to do it, I think that opens up the possibility that the one thing that would have held them off greenlighting this recut was the fact that he would he was backed away completely from the project. So I hold out hope. Hashtag restore the Lynch cut. <laughs> I wonder if he'll take off. <laughs> Speaking of longer cuts, this is one that you'll like. The assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford uh, from filmmaker Andrew Dominic has been confirmed by Dominic to have a longer cut out there. Something that has been hinted at by Roger Deakins in interviews. Deakins suggested there was a four-hour cut. Andrew Dominic has said that they tried to get Warner Brothers to allow them to release a longer version of it. They're not interested in doing it. And he thinks that somebody tried to petition Criterion to do it, but Criterion were not interested in Jesse James. But it doesn't stop him from wanting to get that version out. He says apparently there's only a 15 minutes longer cut, but it includes a scene that was really, really great, but they had to chop it. So let's keep our fingers crossed on that one because I know you've got a lot of love. I, I, I love it. I think it's, it's, it's a, a beautiful film. I think it is an absolutely beautiful film and I hold it up when I'm talking about cinematography as one of the, the, the best looking, has, has one of the best looking scenes ever. Um, I, I'm not bothered about seeing because it, it is a film that is is damn near perfect for me. I know it's it didn't yeah. find the love at the box office, but for me, it is darn near perfect. And I'm happy with the cut that we've got because I absolutely love it. I know Michael Mann and Francis Ford Coppola have gone back and tinkered with their films uh, relentlessly, yeah. uh, and they're films for me which are which are perfect and don't need tinkering with. So. I think I think tinkering is 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 one of those elements when a film isn't perfect. Yeah, that's when you go back and tinker with a film. But when a film is is has been critically re- reviewed and uh, and has all the plaudits, I, I don't see the point. I think then it becomes ego. I'm looking at George Lucas as part of that as well. So um, yeah. while I, um, it's great that they, I think it would make a great TV series on Netflix. I mean, mm. Quentin Tarantino was going to do it with Once Upon a Time in America. Release it there as four parts and I'd, I'd be more than interested then but I, I wouldn't I wouldn't entertain seeing seeing the film recut because I think it's perfect anyway I've got a little bit of casting news uh, Percy Jackson uh, was one of those Harry Potter I wouldn't say rip-offs because the books were in their own right but but studios were buying up uh, young adult sorcerer fantasy characters right left and center after the success of Harry Potter and, and Percy Jackson was one of them the films weren't liked by the book's author and there was a lot of talk for a long time that Disney Plus were going to uh, take the rights, do something fresh with it, and stick closer to the original vision that the author had. Anyway, it's now happening. It's happening as a Disney Plus series, and they have cast the Adams Project, Walker Scoble, in the lead road. And we just said how good he was in the Adam Project. So if you're a fan of Percy Jackson, is this closer to the vision? Because I've never read the books. I think I'm far too old. As I said, the author himself wasn't keen on the movies. And I, d- I didn't mind the first movie at all. So I- I'm intrigued yeah. to see how much improved the series can be. Yep, yeah, I'm definitely intrigued with that one, particularly because of that casting, because he was so good in the yeah, other project. Yeah, he was. He was great. Very confident actor. Uh, Salma Hayek is going to replace Tandy Newton in the Magic Mike's Last Dance for Warner Brothers Pictures, which has already begun production in London. A statement from Warner's spokesman says that it's been... Re- revealed that Newton made the difficult decision to step away from the production to deal with family matters. Uh, The film is the third one to feature Channing Tatum, who we'll be talking about later in the show, as male stripper Mike Lane, following the 2012 first film and the 2015 sequel, Magic Mike XXL. The franchise also spawned a very lucrative stage show. 
Uh, Soderbergh wrote and directed the first film, but only penned the second. Is back to both write and direct oh, this third. Now entry. I'm interested. I've got to tell you, when I went to see that, I went to see it to review it because I was still a paid reviewer at that time, and I was the only male in the <laughs> audience. And I saw I saw an early in the day show, and I, I felt uncomfortable because I, I I clearly was the only guy there. It's bizarre because that first film was marketed as the film that the second film turned out to be. Yeah, I mean it's it's. Steven Soderbergh does this. He takes B-movie ideas, sometimes C-movie ideas, and does something smart with them because he knows cinema and he knows how to play with very specific genres. He's, he's done it through all of his films. You know, look at the Oceans movies. He, he takes uh, cinematic ideals and, and, and turns them into his own signature movie. So here's an interesting thing. You mentioned Coda last week about Apple+. Plus. And how people would were being drawn to to in such a huge way to see Coda in particular, and and hopefully people are sticking around because we've said many many good things about Apple Plus, and seemingly with continuation of doing quality work, there have been some deals put in place over the last uh, over the last few weeks that are very interesting to us film geeks. Yeah, so this is the news that Apple Plus, the TV service that seems to be gravitating towards quality over quantity, has now added Playtone partners Tom Hanks and Gary Goatsman in a multi-year exclusive overall deal with the service. This pact will cover services, documentaries and unscripted projects for Apple to develop, produce and distribute globally. In addition, Apple original films and Playtone have already begun to move forward on a sequel to the Hanks-led World War II submarine chase action thriller Greyhound, which became one of the service's most watched works. Hanks and Spielberg are also producing the World War II series Masters of the Air, which is a follow-up to HBO's Band of Brothers and the Pacific for Apple TV+, with that series having just wrapped filming. That follows American bomber boys in World War II who brought war to Hitler's doorsteps. With all these exclusive partnerships, Apple TV Plus is really getting itself into a solid position to keep delivering on the quality and the acclaim that they've seen in recent outings such as Coda, Severance, Pachinko, The After Party and Slow Horses. Not forgetting all-time favourite Ted Lasso. Whilst meanwhile over on Netflix, a film that we mentioned a while back, which was in production from Sony, will be going straight to the streaming giants themselves. And that's The Man from Toronto. Now, this project was developed and produced by Sony Pictures, originally intended to get an August theatrical release. But now the streamers have paid for exclusivity on it, and it comes as part of their exclusive first look deal that Sony signed with them last year. This is the film that will see Kevin Hart and Woody Harrelson revolving around a case of mistaken identity after the world's deadliest assassin, known as the Man from Toronto, played by Harrelson, and a stranger, Kevin Hart, run into each other at an Airbnb. Chaos will follow as the assassin's world comes crashing down on heart. The film comes from Australian director Patrick Hughes, who gave us the hitman's bodyguard, along with writers Robbie Fox and Chris Bremner, and it will be released on the service later this year. And that, folks, is the news. So you know we do our Twitter challenges. This is a challenge just for you, dear listeners. Our challenge is to go over to your favourite podcast platform, and if you haven't done so, subscribe to The Film File, and remember to leave a like. And we also ask you, in this time, because it's Easter, this is our special Easter show, that you get your friends involved. We want to really boost our listenership, because there is so much more we want to do with The Film File. And um, this is just the tip of the iceberg. 
because we are, are breaking our way into just about everything. And we have some big plans of things that we'd like to do, but we need your support. So tell your friends, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, and become part of the Film File family. But Andy, how do you how do you become a part of the Film File family? Uh, you can head on over to Twitter and follow us at Film File UK. You can find us on other social media platforms, Film File UK. We are on YouTube as well, Film File UK. Or you can email us and give us thoughts, suggestions, top 10 lists, anything about film, anything about entertainment, get in touch with us. The email address is podcast at filmfile.uk. So now it's time for our deep dive. And you know, most weeks, Andy and I talk about films which are very, very personal to us. Sometimes we talk about franchises that we've, we've not particularly enjoyed. Sometimes we have very varying views on some of the films that we've talked about. This week, we're going to be talking about a film which is much maligned. And in my opinion, rightly so. Doesn't mean I haven't got any love for it. But this is Stephen King's one and only directed film. Came out in 1986. It could be classed as a comedy horror. It could be classed as an absolute disaster. And it could be the reason that Stephen King never directed another film. But we're going to be looking at Maximum Overdrive. Who was driving it? I don't know. I just want to get the hell out of here. Please don't have to be in the dark. You're going to get us in an awful lot of trouble, man. We already in trouble. Maximum terror. Jesus coming and he is. Maximum King. Maybe tomorrow will be our world again. Dino De Laurentiis presents Stephen King's Maximum Overdrive. So, as I said, directed by Stephen King. Story is, after a comet causes a radiation storm, all machines on Earth come to life and turn against their makers. Hold up in a North Carolina truck stop a group of survivors must fend for themselves against a a mass of homicidal trucks. Led by dinner cook Bill, as played by a very young and sweet-faced Emilio Estevez. So you're thinking, people hold up in a truck stop, killer trucks, what's not to like? I mean, hey, this is a Stephen King story, and it's a great Stephen King story. Appeared in his Night Shift uh, series of novellas, and it's absolutely apt to be turned into a big screen Stephen King story. Hey, they did it with The Mist. And that's about where the similarity ends. <laughs> because Stephen King, great writer that he is, and we have a lot of love on this show for Stephen King, he's not a director. And this film kind of proved that he wasn't the guy to make this movie. But Andy, you do have love for this movie. Oh, I have a lot of love for this film. Now, I've not watched this film for about two decades because this is a film that I loved so much when I first saw it and watched it quite frequently that I've always been worried that it didn't live up to what my memories were. I was made aware of this film 
via the music video for Who Made Who by ACDC, playing on the Night Network, probably the, the late night rock shows on ITV when the Night Network started off. And I needed to see this film because ACDC did the music. I'm a, a huge rockhead in the early teens. And so I needed to see this film based on that alone. So when it came out on home release and we got the rental out, I slammed the VHS in and I loved it. The young teenage me didn't realize how bad a film it was. I just got caught up in it. It's B-movie nonsense. And that's, I've mentioned a few times, I've got a love for B-movie nonsense. And this is B-movie nonsense. Uh, Through the years, I revisited it from time to time. But like I say, for two good decades, I've not watched it because did it stand up? So I rewatched it this week and boy, I had a blast. My rewatch went really well. Yes, this is a bad film. And yes, Stephen King should stick to writing. Although he also wrote the screenplay and the dialogue in this is awful. The cast are coasting by throughout. The effects are cheap. I mean, many mannequins were harmed during the making of this film. (laughs) (laughs) But right from the opening scene with King himself in a cameo role, looking at an ATM who's calling him an asshole and go, honey. This machine just called me an asshole. And then the ACDC's Who Made Who riff starts kicking in. That's it. I was in. And you say that like it could be seen as a comedy horror. I don't think he intended it to be a comedy horror, but it is. It's a comedy horror unintentionally. And I embrace that. There's moments that can get it right. I mean, it's, it's B-movie schlock. And every now and then there's a, there's a framing shot or like an action shot that you go, well, actually... He kind of knew what he was doing there. Yeah, I mean, he doesn't know what he was doing because in his own admission, he was coked off his face through the whole production of this. (laughs) Well, that's right. I mean, that's one of the issues, one of the many issues that that this film has is that this was at the height of of King's cocaine problem and and also his his drinking problem. And uh, he would turn up on set and not really know what he was doing. I remember hearing Legend by somebody worked on it when I was out in, in L.A. and King didn't know how to cut between two actors talking, you know, mm. which is part of film school law because he kept breaking what's known as as the line. There's a, a an imaginary line that runs through uh, what the audience perceives to be to be on the right side of it. Very complicated, and and King didn't have a clue about elements like this. And the DP at the time was trying to pull him up and and get him to do things that were technically right. So you've you've as, as they say, God loves a try. <laughs> And there's a reason that King hasn't gone back to directing. I don't think King is a great screenwriter. No. I think he's a great book writer. And I think all the scripts that he's tackled of his own work don't really work out to it. And and that's been proved recently with his Apple TV adaptation of of, of Lysi's story, which is his favourite book that he's ever written. And it, it, it fails due to his plotting on it. It's too close to his book. Now, that's a classic book, and, and, and Chucks was a, a, a novella in, in one of his uh, um, uh, short stories. But there could have been a better version of this made in which the comedic aspects of whether you, they intended to be in there or it was just because of the nature of machinery coming to life, it, it, there could have been a better version of this because it's an intriguing story. I love a horror story of people being trapped in a yeah. in a situation while the the monsters for whatever reason are the, on the outside coming in. It's kind of my favourite horror trope: the mist, yeah. Night of the Living Dead. In this one, it's just all over the place. 
And I've read the original script and the original script doesn't do it any favours either. I think one of the things that lets this down for getting the atmosphere is that everything is so brightly lit. Yeah. Everything seems clean and yeah, you need that element of darkness and foreboding and it's not present in here. But like I say, there's things that he gets right. You know what he gets right? And this is something that he did in the books as well, because again, his own admission, he was coked off his face for quite a good era. And some of his most shocking moments in books came from him not really knowing what he was doing. The brutal way that he does things that other directors shy away from, killing kids on screen or mutilating animals on screen. That's something that, you know, is kind of taboo, even in the horror world. And yet in this... You get kids running over by big, like, 16-wheeler trucks. You get them getting knocked unconscious by cans flying out of a vending machine. He doesn't care. He's just going to kill everyone indiscriminately. And that's quite refreshing to see in any horror film. Yeah, he does it in all of his books. Yeah, you get all that kind yeah. of visceral horror in his books. And, and sometimes that translates really well onto the big screen because it does shock us. It, yeah, it, it's shocking. Some of, some of the effects work, yes. Like I say, there's loads of mannequins getting thrown around and you can tell when it's a bad mannequin. But there are some nice moments where it's just like, oh, that's actually quite well done. Um, I do like the bridge being open scene, even though it goes on for too long. Everything is just done to the extreme. And this is a film that you know that it's bad when you're watching it. You, but it's one of them that it's so bad that you can get some enjoyment from watching along and just having a laugh. Like I say, when I used to watch this in my youth, I watched it as a kid, loved it. And then as I got into my, like, my late teens and early 20s, this was like one of them that you sit with your mates and have a few drinks and just put it on and all enjoy mocking it at the same time whilst loving what's going on. But it's definitely the fact that ACDC's music is embedded and immersed in the film that is one of the drawing points for me and one of the things that keeps me smiling every time that I watch it. Like I say, I rewatched it this week and I, I really want to watch it again. Uh, my daughter and my wife watched half of it with me and they were kind of enjoying it, but they were wondering why the hell I was watching it. <laughs> <laughs> you were doing the Lord's work, that's why, Andy. Um, there was a remake of this in 1997, a television movie, which didn't fare that much better <laughs> because it simply has the limitations of of what a TV movie can do. Yeah. It's, it's forgettable in a different way than King's is. Uh, it gets the idea of, of people being confined in this this uh, uh, truck stop right, but it's just so poorly acted and, and so poorly put on screen that it, it, it makes you think, is this the, the right story to make the translation to the screen? Well, Joe Hill seems to think so, because back in 2020, he said that he'd love to take a crack at adapting the story for the screen. OK, I mean, maybe there is room for a, a good version of this. Um, who knows? I think the shadow of Maximum Overdrive would still hang over it. I think if you went and called it Trucks, then you could do something new and fresh with it. Yeah. You know, with Stephen King stories, you know what? They don't stay dead for very long. There's always somebody who's going to come back and do some kind of a remake. If you want to track down Maximum Overdrive, and I suggest that everyone do, don't listen to what all the naysayers have said. Give it a check out because you might find, like me, that you find some love for it in the cheesy nature. I know there's a lot of B-movie fans out there who agree with me on the B-movies that sometimes you can switch your brain off and just enjoy the ride. It's not available on any streaming services at the moment, but you can still pick up the DVD or Blu-ray at really good prices on all online retailers. So just pick it up. Just give it a shot, throw it in, and just enjoy a simple bit of B-movie schlock. And, and schlock it is, but you know what? Sometimes we do need just a little bit of schlock in his lives.
And now it's time for this week's reviews. Andy and I saw a film together. I know it's a rarity, but we actually <laughs> sat in the same cinema and managed to see a film together. So first up, you're going to hear our review of this week's biggish release of The Lost City. What is this, Taken? Am I Tooken? <laughs> Alan? I'm here to save you. Ow! She has the key to finding the lost treasure. After them! I am driving. Oh, 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 oh! 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 What is that? Just pick it and fling you it. You pick it and fling it! Don't make it sound. <laughs> getting you out of here. Why are you so handsome? My dad was a weatherman. The Lost City, March 25th. Starring Sandra Bullock and Channam Tatum, it's the story of a grieving romance novelist, Loretta, played by Bullock, who is kidnapped by an eccentric billionaire, Daniel Radcliffe, played by Daniel Radcliffe. Her cover model, Alan, Channam Tatum, takes off after her in an attempt to prove that he's more than just a pretty face and that he has what it takes to be a hero. Unfortunately, for their chance of survival, that pretty face might really be all they have. This is a kind of a throwback, very much an 80s style movie, but pretty much a throwback to Romance in the Stone. You've got Sandra Bullock, who is winning almost every role that she's in. She has charisma just falling off her. She's that much of a great screen presence. Then you've got Channon Tatum, who is, you know, good-looking guy, has some amount of screen presence. You've got a couple of cameos in this one. I'm going to stay quiet as to who they actually are, so you're not in spoiler territory. Yeah. You've got <laughs> Daniel Radcliffe, all grown up. He's all grown up now as the villain. that has absolutely no screen gravitas whatsoever. <laughs> You've got everything that in maybe other directors' hands, this might have been a good film. But for me, boy, this was a slog. This was a film that lacked any charisma on screen. And, and even though it has such, such well-known, beautiful faces in it, just was so by the numbers that you could fill it in as you were, you were going on. Now, I'm going to put my hand up and say, didn't see this with a great audience. And sometimes that can impact on, on your feelings for a film. We've got an audience who seemed half interested. It was a, a free viewing. Uh, it was coming up to Bank Holiday. And you've got people bringing kids in, and, and this is a film that is not, even though it's got Daniel Radcliffe in, hey, it's not aimed at little kids. But it just missed, it just missed all, all, all the targets from start to finish. It was over familiar. We've been in this territory before. Not even Sandra Bullock's amazing charm could save it. And it's a film that annoyed me. It just annoyed me on every level. I don't think I laughed once throughout what's yeah. supposed to be. Uh, a comedy and I couldn't figure out why these two characters would like each other and be drawn to each other because that's the the essence of every kind of romantic adventure that these two will eventually fall in love um, and a bit like the jumpsuit that she's forced to wear it's it's very very sparkly and nice to look at but would you really want to wear that yeah, this, this is a film that made the mistake of thinking that it's funnier than it actually is. Yeah. And in doing so, it wasted any potential it had to showcase Bullock and Tatum because it takes the attention away from them far too often. 
it de- desperately, and we both agreed on this, that it's a film that desperately tries to make every character a witty, comical take yeah, on a trope. Yeah, was with that. Which becomes overkill. Let your key cast be the witty ones and have everyone else play serious around them, and that would have worked better because, as a result, we ended up with loads of characters just saying, biting one-liners for no reason at all. There's the subplot with Bullock's agent tracking her down, which is, was an idea that was done so much better in Tropic Thunder when Matthew McConaughey did it. And in this, it just feels like you were just shoehorning in someone else uh, because you realised you haven't got a big enough cast. And like you say, Radcliffe has no screen presence. He's he's clearly having fun chewing scenery, but he's desperately out of place and he just doesn't have any menace or peril because they play him for the jokey aspects. Stop thinking that every character has to be funny in a comedy. They don't. The best characters in a comedy are the ones who are playing serious because that's where you get your laughs from with their serious reactions to something stupid. What was refreshing, though, and I mentioned it when we were leaving the screen, uh, that you've normally got the movie trope of like a, an older male actor and like a young female actress in love with them and admiring them because it's always been like something that's been criticised yeah. that, you know, it seems to be that male actors like George Clooney get better with age where they sideline all the females once they go past the age of 30. And here you have the older female lead, Bullock, who still looks amazing. Yeah, even though there was a lot of filters on. There was a lot yeah. of filters on every close-up. She still has that great on-screen presence. And the male admirer is the very younger Tatum. And it was refreshing to have that played around. This is a film that has so many good ideas, but just fumbles it at every turn. You know what I feared most about this film? I think it was probably such a gas to make that everyone is having a great time. Every yeah. member is having a laugh and, and enjoying it. And and sometimes that happens. It's like when off-screen romances happen because that, that charisma, that, that, that uh, falling in love that the audience want doesn't happen. It doesn't, it doesn't translate. You know, we've yeah. seen husband and wife teams on screen and, and it just hasn't, hasn't, no on-screen chemistry because all the chemistry is in real life. I think this is a case of they had a better time making it than we did did watching it. And everybody had a good old laugh and enjoyed it so much because they, it was it was silly. Everyone was having a silly time. But that, that yeah. didn't transfer. Daniel Radcliffe, yeah, he's grown up well. But, you know, anybody who thinks that he should be Wolverine, come on. He just has no presence in his voice. He has no gravitas yeah. in his voice to be evil. And so they send up the, the evilness of him by making him constantly silly. So when there are little moments of, of, of threat and peril, you, 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 you don't buy it because there will be a joke way of, of getting out of it every time. Everybody had a zinger. Everybody had a, uh, had a, had a one-liner. And so there was no, no sense of menace to this film. Even in, you know, you're going to say it's a, it's a romantic action-adventure, but Romancing the Stone had menace. Uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark, has menace this this doesn't because it's all a jolly jape sparkly but ultimately uninteresting for me yeah moving on to a film that i am gagging to see and andy got to see it uh it's it's on my must see list and that is the norseman why would he throw away to such a hellish place to find what was stolen from me and what is that the kingdom. And night by night, we will carry out my pledge of vengeance. I want to 
Alexander Skarsgård plays Amleth, a once prince on the verge of becoming a man when his father was brutally murdered by his uncle, who had also kidnapped his mother. He swore vengeance on his uncle, and two decades later, he's become a fierce Viking warrior, raiding Slavic villages. When he hears news about where his uncle is now, and has an encounter with a mysterious seeress who prophesies his future, he sets off to avenge his father and save his mother. The film is a stunning example of epic storytelling, with bloody and brutal carnage, a strong story that carries through, and elements of mysticism and religion drawing from Viking mythology and lore. Skarsgård in the lead role is strikingly mesmerising on the screen, his presence grabbing your attention and demanding you follow his journey. Surrounded by a solid cast who all have something to offer to the film, no role here is wasted, and the inclusion of names such as Willem Dafoe, Nicole Kidman, Bill Skarsgård, Anya Taylor-Joy, Ethan Hawke and Björk mean that Eggers has the deck stacked in his favour from the start. While so many other indie directors have struggled to make that shift over to bigger, higher-budgeted output, Eggers succeeds phenomenally, delivering his largest and most focused film so far. Working under a studio umbrella, he retains his striking visual flair and darker-edged themes, while still managing to make a film that is accessible to the general audience. The visual style, aided by some sumptuous cinematography from Yarin Blaschke, who's been with Eggers since the start, utilises the environment and landscapes and shifts from black and white to colour in such a deft manner that it gives a film that is marvellous to observe, let alone follow. When the action comes, it is fluidly delivered with marvellously long takes, which carry us through the carnage with intense brutality. All of this is complemented by a score by Sebastian Gainsborough and Robin Carolan, which evokes the fierce majesty of the Vikings. This is an unmissable and somewhat unique epic. I left the theatre feeling that I had just genuinely seen my favourite film of 2022, not just so far, but in its entirety, because it's going to take something really unique and special to top this piece. Thrilling, engaging, majestic, bloody... This is yet another example of how Eggers is one of the most unique voices in filmmaking today. And whilst it's very rare that I will go to watch something more than once at the cinema, after all, there's so many to see, I'll usually wait until home release before revisiting something, this is something that I really want to see again on the big screen while it's still there. Get this film marked down to get watched. You won't regret it. I, I'm, I'm so looking forward to seeing this, Andy. Um, I, I couldn't make it due to circumstances. By the time we get round to the next episode of the show, I will have seen this. Next up then, Andy's going to be talking about Choose or Die. Is that the name of the movie or is that the state of mind that you got from watching it? Then... I don't see how a video game can kill someone. The more the cursed suffer, the more... Of benefits. If it sent you here, it can't be for anything good. It's gonna hurt. We gotta choose, Caleb. I think you might be what it was looking for. The film sees a cursed video game as the focus in a low-budget variation on the ring. Set in the present day, 
a retro gamer uncovers an old game that had kind of been lost within the realms of time as a curiosity. The game, known as Curse R, Cursor, get it? Funny, witty? Well, the film thinks it is because it even references it later on. An old 1980s text adventure game, which has a curse connected to it, is uncovered by a retro gamer and sets off a sequence of events that eventually see a broke student playing the game, which apparently there's an unclaimed prize of $100,000 still linked to the game. After a series of unexpectedly terrifying moments, she soon realises she's no longer playing for the money, but for her very own life. Now, this is a film that's not as clever as the concept thinks it is. Every time that it looks like it's going to pick up, it kind of gets a bit silly and tries to force more video game aspects into the mix. I'm talking in particular about a top-down driving game moment that really broke the film for me halfway through. And the whole film suffers as a result. There's a cast of characters that are all inherently unlikable, and the lack of anything to actually care about simply means that you sit there waiting for some horrific moment to happen, rather than hoping that nothing bad happens, which a good horror should have you connecting with at least one person who you don't want anything bad to happen to. By the time of the final showdown moment, I pretty much lost interest with this film. And with the suggestion that the film seems to want to set up a new horror franchise from the root idea, hammered home immensely in the last act, it just left me thinking of how I could have better spent my time. All in all, this is a forgettable modern horror movie that lacks the creativity of the very text adventures that it's trying to draw and reference to. Other Netflix outputs, including Bandersnatch, have played with a similar kind of concept of retro video gaming in a much better way. However, it needs to be said that the film gained half a star on my review on Letterboxd simply because the director's name is Toby Meekins. And, you know, we've got a side with our own. <laughs> Any relation? <laughs> no relation, but he's getting an extra half star because we've got to support each other. <laughs> um, so, to quote Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade, you chose unwisely. <laughs> okay, so that's what's out this week. And we've already said we aren't going to be reviewing Fantastic Beasts 3. What is coming up over the next week? There's not a great deal coming out this week, so it's going to be quite light. However, there is the unbearable weight of massive talent at cinemas that I intend to see sometime this week, ready for next week. I have heard so much good, positive stuff about this movie. For, for what appears initially to, to be a bit of a joke, I have just... I've already heard it called uh, one of the films of the year. Hopefully that's going to pay off. On Now TV and Sky, you've got Stillwater lands this week and also a sci-fi rom-com called Moonshot. There's the two words that, that really, really make me hide in fear. Sci-fi sci rom-com. What if I add in the A Sky original onto the back of that? Oh, well then, uh, <laughs> I may as well just leave the building now. You know I'll be watching it. <laughs> you do the Lord's work, son. You really do. <laughs> on Netflix, there's Along for the Ride. Uh, so it's very light on new material this week. So don't be surprised if we dig back to some of the films that we've missed out on over the previous weeks, such as Antlers. I tell you what, I am intrigued about this new series with Josh Brolin that's landed on Amazon. And outer range from the trailer it appears to be sci-fi could be supernatural one of those that clearly amazon has spent a lot of money on looks very very intriguing i'm going to try and get to see that this week i think we're just about done for this week's episode uh, but as ever before we go out we're going to give you our neat thing now our neat things are things that andy and i have enjoyed whether we've watched played read you name it if we think it's neat we're going to tell you about it. Andy, 
what's your neat thing for this week? Uh, we've spoken previously about how much of a fan of Tolkien I am, you know, being the video games, the books, etc. And when we spoke recently about the films, it got me wanting to read the books again. But I decided not to read the books. I decided to use my subscription to Audible and start with the audiobooks. And I've started with the audiobook of The Hobbit, the version read by Andy Serkis. And I feel that I've made the right choice there because there's multiple recorded versions of this, but you cannot beat having Andy Serkis providing voices for not only Gollum, but also the myriad of characters that that book has. And I am loving it. It's reminding me what it is that I love about Tolkien, that, you know, with The Hobbit, he made a children's book that wasn't pandering down to the children. It was very adventurous, very exploratory. And he also packs it with so much little wealth of details. And listening to Andy Serkis, particularly once he got to the Gollum scene, um, it just makes it a magical journey to listen to. Once I've finished on this, I've been checking out to see what Audible have got on The Lord of the Rings. And I'm in two minds. I don't know whether to get the standard editions of the Lord of the Rings books read or go for the drama radio play versions and listen to them. I might just end up doing them all and just spend the next year just constantly listening to everything Tolkien. But my neat thing is my love of Tolkien, again, is being reinvigorated just by us talking about it a few weeks ago. And now I'm exploring the audiobooks for the first time. It's really coincidental that you brought that up (laughs) because over the last couple of weeks, uh, the child has watched The Hobbit. He's not seen Lord of the Rings. He's watched The The Hobbit, the three movies. On Netflix, he was a massive fan, and in fact, to the point that he just played them to death of the Harry Potter um, books on Audible, read by Stephen Fry. Yeah. So this week, we started him on something new, and that was The Hobbit, read by Andy Serkis. So I've heard bits and pieces <laughs> of it in the background, and he started on it this week. And and as you said, you can't go wrong with with Andy Serkis reading reading The Hobbit. The one thing about Audible is, and, and I've, I've not been let down with anything I've had with Audible, they are so brilliantly, brilliantly read. Uh, and it, it just adds another dimension to it. I there, There's a series of books I, I started reading and then went to the last one on, on Audible. And I, I've got to get that because the, the, the reader on it... Mm. Is now I, how I hear uh, those those characters. I think it's a- absolutely superb. I, I, I love Audible, and I'm now halfway through Sandman book two, and I uh, I need to start thinking about something else and go back to it. Anyway, my neat thing this week. It was a long time coming. We waited and we waited, and and eventually, despite the Twitter sphere saying, "Will we ever get it?" We got it, and that was Peacemaker, and it's now playing on Sky Showcase, and I am having an absolute ball with this series so it's an offshoot of uh, the suicide squad directed by james gunn written by james gunn and man it's fantastic it's a lot more emotional than i thought it was going to be it's puerile in some of its humor there's there's lots of visceral <laughs> pieces to it as well um you get to see john senna standing around in his pants for a lot if you like that sort of thing but it it hits as every good TV series does in a way that a film can't, it spends a lot of time with the emotional aspect of being someone who considers himself to be a superhero, but turns out to be a little bit more, well, a bit more of a menace to society. It's vulgar in exactly the right way. It's got some fantastic needle drops, so much so that I've, I've managed to track down most of the tracks and create my own 
uh, original soundtrack. Thank you to James Gunn who put all the list on Spotify. And I'm just having a, a really, really good time with it. Whether there'll be a season two at this stage, I don't know. I don't know if anything's been announced. But Peacemaker is a really intriguing aspect of what DC can do with some of their some of their lesser known characters. Yeah. Now, I, I'm a great believer that comic books start with kids and then you stick with them rather than the other way around that, that comic books are aimed at adults and maybe kids will get into it. I think you, I think that's the, the major issue with the comics industry right now is that we forget that this is a, a, a young person's domain and we've, we've kind of taken hold of it. But, but when they do something different, and I don't think you could do this with, with a Marvel character and, and because of the relationship with Disney, but go absolutely somewhere else and, and deal with a, a character in this way. I think it, it's what DC has the unique ability to do. So my neat thing, and I'm halfway through the series and I'm loving it and it's Peacemaker. And you've, you've already got to the end, haven't you? Yeah, with Peacemaker, what I love as well is that James Gunn name drops all the obscure characters from DC canon, including White Dragon, Batmite, even Matter-Eating Lad has been yeah. name dropped. He's made them all canon for the DCEU just because he loves them. And we get to see some of them in there. I mean, Kite Man's been mentioned as well. It's great. I love Peacemaker. Like you say, it's got heart to it as well. It's got a solid core story, but it is immensely funny and so much fun. I'm glad you're enjoying it. I am. That's it, folks. We'll be back next week with another film file. Thank you for joining us. And please try and spread the word because, as I said before, there is so much we want to do. Andy, any big plans for the next week? Uh, not a huge deal. I've got a bit of a busy week of work ahead of me. I've still got to work out the quiz for next week at the site. But aside from that... Continue with me comedy film watching and see if I can introduce my daughter into some of the comedies that I've loved through the years again. Ooh, that'd be interesting. Blackadder's a good place to start. Monty Python yeah. and Holy Grail. It's worth a shot. Let's yeah, see. yeah, yeah. Comedy is so individual. Right, yeah. folks, that's it. Andy, adios, mother. Yeah.